Again, if you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to raise your hand and we'll put a Bible into your hands you can use for today. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, we would love to give you a brand new one after service that you can take home. Does anybody need a Bible today? Don't try to use the one in the pew. It probably won't work for you. We've got a couple. But if you open that one up in the pew, just pretend like you can read it and none of us would ever know. So for those of you who have a Bible, uh, turn to Matthew 23. We are going to cover the entire chapter this morning, verses 1 through 39. It's all kind of a package deal um, because we have come to the last public sermon of Jesus. It was given only days before his death. And it's an interesting one because we would kind of think that this last message would have been some warm message of salvation and of invitation, but instead it was a message of condemnation. It was a message of you know, denunciation, if you will, against this religious ruling class that, that was there in that day. It's a, it's a condemnation of false religion kind of parading itself under the guise of truth. And it's that famous, familiar passage where Jesus calls the Pharisees blind guides and fools and whitewashed tombs. You see, Jesus didn't hold back at all. He speaks very pointedly. He speaks powerfully about their hypocrisy. And he speaks passionately because the error of the Pharisees was a very serious error. And it's an error we've talked about. And unfortunately, it's an error that we still see today. And if we're honest with ourselves, it's an error that we each can sort of fall into the trap we can be guilty of unless we're really guarding against it, unless we're really seeking to walk in God's grace and according to God's goodness. So we're going to look at those things this morning. I think there's some important stuff in here for each one of us. Let's pray and just ask the Lord uh, to bless our time in the Word. So Father, we do thank you for today, Lord. We do thank you for all of those men and those women who have given their lives, Lord. We remember them today. We honor their service, Lord. Um, so thankful for them, Lord. So thankful for all that you've provided and blessed us with here in, uh, in our country. And Father, we pray as we go to your word this morning that you would speak to us, Lord. Help us to understand your heart, Lord, around these important things. And so we thank you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So here, just days before the cross, remember we've been looking since we started back in chapter 21. We saw those three signs that would signify judgment. We saw three parables. Last week we looked at three questions. All of them were sort of designed by these Jewish religious leaders, remember, to try to trick and to trap Jesus. And we saw, of course, to each one of them, he gave these answers that were filled with heavenly wisdom. And he easily unraveled their kind of web of confounding and conniving that they had cooked up. And we noted that that would be the last time that he would publicly engage in dispute and debate with these men. And instead, as we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 23, still standing there in the courts of the temple, it says that then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples. 
So in a sense, it's like Jesus pivots and he now turns to all of those people who've been there this whole time listening to all of these debates with these religious leaders, this huge crowd of Passover pilgrims that had amassed there. And Jesus is going to speak to these groups, but we'll see that he'll speak about the scribes and the Pharisees. And of course, many of those guys were still standing there, mixed in amongst the crowd, and they were listening intently to every single word he had to say. Now, it's probably important at this point to point out that not every one of the Pharisees were hypocrites. There were probably about 6,000 Pharisees in that day. Most of them were middle-class businessmen. Many, no doubt, were very sincere seekers. They were looking a quest for truth and, and for personal holiness. We know specifically a few of those men that were seeking after truth. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Joseph of Arimathea was a Pharisee. There's an unnamed man that's mentioned in Mark chapter 12 who was one of these Pharisees. All of these men were truly seeking after Jesus. Even in Acts chapter 5, we see Gamaliel. Remember, he was the one that was sort of watching with wisdom this newly formed church. He was looking for evidences of God. He was a Pharisee. And yet, for the most part, sadly, the Pharisees were men who used their religion to promote themselves. And they used it for personal gain. And that's the same thing we still see sometimes today. They used it to make themselves look more important, better to people around them. And so it's important, I think, that as we read these words, we don't come away with that kind of like, oh, well, those terrible Pharisees kind of a thing. Because the truth is, if we're honest, there's a little bit of Pharisee, right, that's alive and well probably within each one of us. And the errors that we see here in their faith are some of the very same errors that we may find in our faith. Maybe our faith personally, but certainly the faith, I think, of the church collectively. So we need to look. We need to listen. I really think with an ear to hear what the Spirit would say to each of us today. So we've got all eyes and ears fixed on Jesus, and he starts here in verse 2, saying that the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do, but do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. So Jesus starts what will be his most clear condemnation of these hypocrites with an exhortation to the crowd that they should be continuing to do what the scriptures teach but not follow after the Pharisees because they are not following after the word of God themselves. They were the teachers of Israel. They were the ones handling the law of God as it was recorded by Moses. At that time, it was said that synagogues had a special stone seat up at the front. And symbolically, it was reserved for Moses. And that was the place where the authoritative teacher of the day would sit as he authoritatively taught God's word. But the difficulty here was that the authority was never intended by God to have been in any man, 
But the authority was always only intended to be in the word of God itself. And therefore, the people were to obey whatever it was the Pharisees were teaching from the word. But Jesus is very clear to say they weren't to obey all of these traditions and the man-made rules that the Pharisees had brought alongside of the word of God. In fact, Jesus makes it very clear there was a, a marked distinction between their words and their ways, right? That their creed was better than their conduct. Somebody said, I liked it, it was a clear-cut case of what we would call high talk, but low walk, right? They weren't walking what they were talking. It's interesting, some of the newer translations render this verse that the scribes and the Pharisees had seated themselves in Moses' seat. And I like that interpretation because, in other words, that they, these men had seized the position of authority when they weren't called by God to ever have done that. Right? It's like, oh, Moses, party of one. And they said, oh, we'll take that reservation, right? Well, who takes somebody else's reservation? Nobody does that. So it, it is a dangerous thing right, for a leader who lacks integrity like these men lacked integrity, you know, simply kind of trafficking in truth and yet never letting that truth actually impact them. When men like this start to handle the things of God and the word of God and then use that to usurp the authority in the lives of the people of God. Because when that false authority is combined with man's inherently sinful personality, it creates a very dangerous, damaging ministry. Look what it says in verse 4. Speaking of the Pharisees, he says that they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. So to them, ministry meant handing down these heavy demands, right? probably their extreme interpretations of the letter of the law, putting those onto the people, adding to their burdens, instead of pointing them to the Lord and ultimately to Jesus Christ, who's the very one who could have helped the people to bear up under those things. Remember, Jesus said back in chapter 11, he said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, real relationship with Jesus, as opposed to man-made religion, it means freedom. It's freedom from the stress and the strain of trying to be in a system that's built on a list of do's and don'ts, a system of religion that's based on fear of judgment and fear of condemnation, or any system that's mediated by any man. See, Jesus came to lighten men's burdens, but legalistic religion always adds to burden. It makes those burdens heavier on the people. And the leaders run around sort of like some sort of spiritual police force. These were hypocritical religious dictators. Right? They weren't really spiritual leaders. They had formed this kind of a clerical caste. Right? They were very outspoken about all of the sins of the people, but they themselves 
were very far from God in their own sense of personal holiness and um, belief. So they focused on the outward appearances of religion. They weren't concerned about the approval of God, but look what he says in verse 5. He says that all their works they do to be seen by men. So to them, successful religion simply meant being recognized by men and receiving praise from men. They used their religion to attract attention to themselves, not to glorify God. They were guilty of advertising all of the religious things that they did. And of course, as the saying goes, clothes make the man, right? So they wanted everybody to see their spirituality, so they were going to put it on display beginning in the rest of verse 5 with what they wore. Because he says that they make their phylacteries broad and they enlarge the borders of their garments. Now remember we talked, was it last week or just the week before, phylacteries were those small little leather boxes into which the Pharisees placed those portions of Scripture. And they wore those little boxes on their foreheads and on their arms. It was their literal way of being obedient to Deuteronomy 6 and 11, which talk about keeping the word of God always on your minds and always you know, at hand. But the problem with this was that every Orthodox Jew wore one of these things. So how in the world could anyone tell that these guys were the most spiritual guys unless they had even bigger phylacteries, right? If more scripture in there on their minds, right? Writers tell us that some made phylacteries that were so big that the wearer could hardly stand straight under the weight of this thing on his head. And in like uh, Numbers chapter 13, Numbers chapter 13 prescribes for the placement of a blue cloth on the hem of their robes. And it was supposed to be a reminder when they looked down that they had a heavenly calling and a heavenly responsibility. And yet, as their pride increased, so did the size of those blue borders. You know, when we're wearing anything, to help us appear more set apart or to look more holy than the people that we're ministering to, we are headed down a dangerous path of self-promotion, right? Self-exaltation. So whether it's robes or shawls or collars, they only attract attention to the person wearing them instead of directing the attention where it's supposed to go, which is on God alone. And what happens, it rarely stops there, because for these men, they weren't content just to display their supposed spiritual um, you know, authority. They wanted people also to admire it. So the next thing is not only what they wore, but now in verse 6, it's where they were seen. Because it said that they loved the best places at the feasts and the best seats in the synagogues. So they thought that position was a mark of greatness, so they would scramble for the places of honor. And in the synagogues, they actually set up chairs on the platform so that they could sit there and be seen by everyone. Now, you guys all know that we rent this building, amen? Amen. 
at the feasts, right? They would sit strategically. They wanted to be as close up to the front near the head table as they could so they could be recognized and seen by all the guests, right? So it was what they wore. It was where they were seen. And next, it's how they were addressed. It said, Jesus says these guys loved. They lived for, he said, verse 7, greetings in the marketplaces and to be called by men, rabbi, rabbi. But you do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. So they thought titles were a mark of greatness, and they fed their egos with these things. The title rabbi literally means my great one. And so it was coveted by these religious leaders. So Jesus is warning us here against giving any person any kind of inappropriate honor that should be directed only to God. Titles like rabbi and father, master, all of those suggest they carry kind of a sense of authority. And Jesus says we're to avoid those in a spiritual sense. Now, God has placed spiritual leaders within the church today, but they should never replace God in the lives of his people. So a true spiritual leader directs people toward the Lord and helps people to find freedom in the Lord and in a closer relationship with the Lord. He doesn't drive them into bondage or, or you know, this weight under the ideas and the beliefs of some authority that he claims to have. Spurgeon said that in the church, all titles and honors which exalt men and give occasion for pride are here forbidden. Now, in light of these verses and what they mean, we have to admit, without picking on anybody, that it's hard not to see the irony that Jesus' clear command is so disregarded by entire denominations within the church who refer to their priests as father or even holy father. And yet that's not to say that in other groups within the church that they're not subject to the very same spirit of error because we can all be so quick to elevate or to somehow attach a little bit of extra honor and status to titles. Titles that come before somebody's name or letters that come after somebody's name, right? From MDivs to THDs to, I found there's M, these are all uh, ministerial degrees, M-A-A-B-S, M-A-T-B-S, M-A-B-T-S, M-A-C-L, M-A-C-M, honorary doctorate degrees. I found over 40 different designations that are available. Now, there is certainly nothing wrong with education, but there is something inherently wrong with using it to elevate oneself in the eyes of the people around you. And not only letters after the name, but what about the title before the name, right? Bishop, Archbishop, Reverend, the Most Reverend, the Right Reverend. You know how I know when it's a sales call at the church office? Because they ask if the Reverend is there. And I say the same thing every time. There's nobody here that's Reverend, but I'll talk to you. 
You know what pastor means? Pastor means one who feeds the flock. Shepherds the flock, period. In fact, our English word pastor comes from the Latin verb pascere, which means to lead to pasture, to set to grazing, to cause to eat. It's all rooted in the biblical metaphor of shepherding. It's like in Jeremiah, the Lord says, I will set up shepherds over them, which shall feed them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall they be lacking, saith the Lord. So all of these ideas sound a lot more like someone who's there to serve and to care for God's people than to exercise any kind of heavyweight spiritual authority over them or to be unduly elevated by them. But that's what was going on with these men. Now, certainly, we have a father, we have teachers in a human sense, and it's okay to call them those things, but what Jesus is warning here is that we shouldn't look at anyone in a sense or, or call anyone anything that gives them undue spiritual authority in our life. Paul says that there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So the ground is absolutely level at the foot of the cross. And no man except Jesus of Nazareth should ever be exalted. In fact, next, Jesus reminds them of this very applicable truth here. He told them this before, right? Leadership positions should never be a goal in and of themselves, but they should always be seen simply for the opportunity that they provide to serve others. Look at verses 11 and 12. He says, but he who is greatest among you, which is what the Pharisees wanted to be, but Jesus says, he shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So what a fitting reminder here, I think, in this context and in contrast, right, to these religious leaders, true greatness is found only in serving other people and not in forcing them to serve us. True greatness can't be manufactured or mandated. It can only be given by God. Peter said, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. And so these Pharisees who were working so desperately hard to exalt themselves eventually would be brought low. And that would be the fruit of their labor. And I think in, in adding this idea here to this initial rebuke of the Pharisees, I think Jesus is clearly communicating that a true spiritual leader does a couple different things. Number one, he avoids elevated titles. And number two, he accepts lowly tasks. You notice that Jesus always avoided titles and honors and acclaim, right, when people were trying to heap those upon him, remember, in his early ministry. And instead, what did he choose to do? He chose always to humble himself. He chose always to eat with sinners and to wash feet and to touch lepers, right? Because Jesus is the ultimate good shepherd. 
leading and feeding the flock. And we each have direct access to him and we can each be in direct relationship with him and we don't need any other man or woman to act as an intermediary setting up some kind of a barrier between us and between God. This is a very serious subject to Jesus. It's very serious to him when people come between him and his sheep. Or when people impose all of these undue burdens on his sheep. And it's so serious that Jesus does something, something next that I think is pretty intriguing because he's now going to end his last public sermon of his public ministry by pronouncing these eight woes, right? These are the woes on those who are doing these things that he just... I tried to figure out how to work toes in there, but there was really no... The woes on those who were stepping on the toes of the people who were doing these things. Now, I want all of you Bible students to think back with me. How did Jesus start his first sermon that started his public ministry? Well, remember he pronounced eight blessings in the form of what we call the Beatitudes there on the Sermon on the Mount back in chapter 5. And so it's fascinating. We're going to see how the eight woes at the end of his preaching ministry correlate so closely with the eight blessings that he gave at the beginning of his ministry. One more quick word before we go quickly through these woes. I don't want us to read these woes with the idea that Jesus has somehow lost his temper with these guys or that he's screaming at them or berating them. Certainly, he was angry at their sins. He was most angry at what their sins had done to his precious sheep. But the attitude of him here, I think, is one more of painful sorrow that the Pharisees were so very blind to God's truth. They were blind to their own sins. The, the woes aren't curses, but instead they're expressions of Jesus' deep sorrow. Woe to you is sort of like saying, alas, for you. Okay, So it's the same sense of sorrow, I think, that Jesus still sees when he looks down on much of the same sin that's involved in the church today. Now in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus described true righteousness, but here he's going to describe false righteousness. So in Matthew 5, chapter 3, the first beatitude is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So it opens up the kingdom of heaven to those who are poor in spirit. And woe number one is against these leaders who have shut the kingdom up to those who are seeking. Verse 13, he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. So the poor in spirit enter the kingdom. The proud in spirit not only keep themselves out, but they even keep others out as well. And they do it by imposing all these human traditions, these human religious rites. They elevate them and they make them more important than God's grace. And any time we make things about what people need to do instead of what God has already done, we are now shutting up the kingdom and keeping them out of it. 
And the sense in the original language here is tragic. It's like people are trying to get in, but they're being prevented. It's bad enough to keep yourself out of the kingdom, but how much worse is it when you stand in the way of others because you're teaching these man-made traditions? In, in Luke chapter 11, Jesus said, Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves, and those who, you, who were entering, you hindered. So instead of opening the doors, they had closed the doors to salvation on so many people. And as we look around today, I think that, that what's often strange is that it's so often, it's the ultra-religious, right? It's the really religious who can sometimes be the most active opponents of the gospel of grace. They can be passionate about everything except the good news of salvation by grace alone. See, it's very hard for the natural fallen man to be the recipient of God's grace. And it's even harder to watch God pour out his grace on other people who aren't working as hard as you are, who aren't trying as hard as you are, who aren't nearly as far along in achieving perfection as you are because what that does is it seems to make everything that you're doing all of your efforts and your earned righteousness it makes that not even that important doesn't it so legalists hate to see grace poured out on people Matthew um, 5 4 the second beatitude is blessed are though they who mourn for they shall be comforted. And woe number two is directed against these leaders who distressed the mourners rather than comforting them. Verse 14, he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. So Jesus promised the mourners would be comforted, but the Pharisees were manipulating the very people who were mourning. These were these men who'd be out there making these pretentious prayers in the public square. All the while, it was like they had a list in their pockets of the widows who just lost their husbands. And then after the prayers, they would show up at these women's houses telling these grieving widows that if she really wanted to honor the memory of her husband, she could do that simply by donating her home or donating her inheritance to their ministry. So they were using their religion like what Paul calls a cloak of covetousness. They were stealing inheritances and they were certainly careful to cover it up in the name of good business or, or stewardship. And there are modern cults today. There are other unscrupulous religious organizations that still use these kinds of similar techniques. They'll get elderly widows or sometimes undiscerning brand new believers to sign over their property to the church with the promise of you know, advancement in the religion or of assurance you know, of their salvation. And yet Jesus is very clear that these kinds of pious pretenders, he says, will receive a greater condemnation. Now, it's harsh language, 
but in our modern way, we would probably say that there is a special place in hell for these kinds of people. So Jesus is serious about this, and we need to be serious about it too. We need to constantly watch in a, in a day when there's all kinds of fundraising always going on, we need to be on guard against those who seek to manipulate rather than to bring comfort. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 5 is beatitude number 3. Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And woe number 3 is against these leaders who are anything but meek, right? There are these pompous fanatics who are trying to take over the earth with their big religious show. In verse 15, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. So the meek would inherit the earth, but here are the Pharisees combing the earth, trying to win people to their legalistic, hypocritical religious system. Now understand, proselyte literally just means a convert to a cause. But these people were being converted to darkness, not to light. They weren't being one to the Lord, they were being one to this kind of twisted religious sideshow. And the tragedy is that when a legalist lays his trip on somebody, typically that person becomes even more zealous for that thing than the legalist was to begin with. Think about people who do CrossFit. No, no, that was unfair that I... Or the paleo people or the whatever people and whatever the new thing is, right? Everybody's got to be doing this thing. Someone said once that the most converted often become the most perverted. And unfortunately today, the best modern analogy is the zeal of the false cults today. We think about Mormons. We think about Jehovah's Witnesses who are willing to knock on 700 doors to reach one person for their cause. And yet the final result is evil because they're not really reaching people for Christ. Now let me say that our hearts should absolutely break for Mormons and break for Jehovah's Witnesses because they, for the most part, I believe, are sincere seekers who have been entangled and enmeshed in this false religious system and they don't even know it. And the people that are out knocking on our doors think sincerely that they're doing right. And yet, from what Jesus says here, their double devotion is only producing double condemnation. So let's pray for those people. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, the fourth beatitude. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Woe number four is against these leaders who made up this whole false righteousness through deception and deceit. Look at verses 16 through 22. He says, Woe to you blind guides who say, Whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. 
fools and blind. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it. And he who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits in it. Now, what is going on here? Right? Well, Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, right? For integrity and truth and simplicity. But the Pharisees weren't hungering for righteousness. They were hungering with wealth and they were playing with semantics and vocabulary in order to get it. Now, out of obedience to God's word, they refused to ever swear by the name of God as the basis of a promise. It's a command from Exodus chapter 20. So what they did is they constructed this elaborate and sort of secret system of oaths, some of which they declared binding and some of which were not. So if someone took an oath that said, I swear by the temple, he could be lying through his teeth and all the rest of the Pharisees would know that that was perfectly acceptable. But it was only when they said, well, I swear by the gold in the temple that they'd be obligated to actually tell the truth. It's, it's very similar to the little kid who makes the promise right with their fingers crossed behind their backs and they think that somehow that makes it okay to tell a lie. So righteousness had become a game. And it was a game that only the Pharisees knew the rules to. They weren't seeking the righteousness of God. They were greedy for gain. Remember back in chapter 15, we saw that they practiced what was called korban, right? It was a way of declaring anything that was dedicated to God couldn't be used for anything else. And it was a way specifically that they would get out of using their money to help their aging parents or to help a family member who needed it. They would say, well, it's Corban. It's, it's dedicated to God. It's these same kind of loopholes, right? They had kind of connived and created this elaborate religious money laundering system that allowed them to rob God and to still maintain their reputations before everyone that was watching them. Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, Beatitude number 5, Jesus said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And woe number 5, we see next, is against these leaders who omitted mercy altogether for things of lesser importance. Verse 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides, he says, who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. So the Pharisees always majored on the minors. Right? They had rules for every minute area of life and at the same time they forgot about the most important things. It's usually the case that legalists are sticklers for details but they're completely blind 
to the undergirding principles of the faith. There's no question that the Old Testament law required tithing or that Abraham practiced tithing long before the law was given. No question that Jacob followed the example of his grandfather. The, the New Testament principles of Christian giving are given in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul says that this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. So as believers, right, we're not content simply to give legalistically, right? just a tithe or 10%. We want to give cheerfully and spiritually and liberally and consistently as a response of our hearts to the things that the Lord has done for us. So Jesus wasn't condemning the practice of tithing. What he was condemning was that these men were so meticulous as to tithe, right? To give God a tenth of even the spices that they brought in from their gardens as they prepared a meal, that they could be so meticulous about that and yet miss out so entirely on the big picture of love and of faith and of mercy, and of justice, and of real righteousness. It's so easy for religious people in particular to become infinitely concerned with the smallest gnat of minutia, but be grossly blind to swallowing these huge camel-like sins of hypocrisy, and dishonesty, and cruelty, and greed. See, our relationship with the Lord is never based on rules and regulations, but it's always based on love. And it's out of that love that flows mercy and justice and righteousness. So the, the sixth beatitude is blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And woe number six is against these leaders who seemed to be spotless on the outside, but they were without any kind of purity of heart on the inside. Verse 25, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. So the purity of a believer enables us to see God, but the hypocrisy of the Pharisees blinded them to the things of God. It's very possible to be clean on the outside and to be horribly defiled on the inside, but the Pharisees, just like their modern-day counterparts, they were careful to keep the outside clean because that's what, what? That's what people around them could see. And yet the Lord declares in 1 Samuel that the, the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And when the Lord looked at these guys, he saw greed and extortion and self-indulgent. And notice, I think it's interesting, Jesus doesn't ask them to choose between either having an outer righteousness or an inner righteousness. He called them, just like he calls us, to be concerned with both those things. But he says first, they needed to address the inside 
because that outward righteousness starts on the inside. And this is where true biblical grace-based Christianity differs from every other false religious system. We don't start with a list of outward requirements and then hoping somehow that once we get those things done, that somehow they're going to work their way to the inside. See, the Bible teaches that God himself, in the person of the Holy Spirit, when we're saved, that he takes up residence inside of us and he starts to then cleanse us and change us from the inside out. He changes who we really are underneath that exterior. See, there's a big difference between our person and our personality. And we want to emphasize the personality, right? What others think about us. But God wants to emphasize the person, and that's who we really are. And that's why David wrote in Psalm 51, Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. And this is such an important concept that Jesus amplifies it again in this next woe. Beatitude number seven is blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. And woe number seven is about these leaders who are full of hypocrisy and are living lives of lawlessness. Verse 27, it says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So people thought that coming in contact with these religious leaders would somehow be sanctifying, but in actuality it was defiling because they were full of iniquity and hypocrisy. Now here are the Pharisees claiming to be men of peace, but at that very moment they were plotting to murder the Prince of Peace. Now Numbers chapter 19 Based on that, the Jewish people were very careful never to touch a dead body or anything that had to do with the dead because that would have caused them to be ceremonially unclean. Now, for a a tourist pilgrim who had traveled to Jerusalem to the Passover, this could be an especially bad situation because by the time you could become ceremonially clean again, you would have missed the whole Passover entirely. So it was customary... For the residents of Jerusalem, right, led by these Pharisees, to whitewash the tombs that surrounded the city. To kind of give them a fresh pretty coat of white paint before the Passover so that as these people came in, no one would touch them accidentally. And in fact, as you can see here, the majority of these tombs are located within the site of the Temple Mount, right there on the side of the Mount of Olives, which means, many believe, that Jesus may have motioned and pointed to them in order to illustrate and to punctuate this very point. He says to the Pharisees, you guys are like those whitewashed tombs on the side of the Mount of Olives right there. And what a perfect picture of the hypocrite. White on the outside, but filled with defilement and death on the inside. Right? Proverbs 4.23 
says, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. And I love what D.L. Moody used to say. He'd say, if I take care of my character, then my reputation will take care of itself. But the Pharisees, just like false religious people today, they live for reputation, not for character. See, our faith is is an internal one. It's about internal renewal and refreshing. It's not about external whitewashing. Beatitude number eight says, Blessed are those who who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this final woe number eight is against these leaders because of their past and even their present actions of being persecutors of God's prophets. Look at verses 29 through 35. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore, you are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. So Jesus said, blessed are the persecuted, and woe to the persecutors. He said, your fathers persecuted all the prophets that were sent, and you yourselves are persecuting and will persecute the prophets that are sent to you. So it was traditional for these guys in an attempt to appear pious, they would build and they would improve and they would embellish the tombs of the great martyrs, you know, of Isaiah. And, you know, they they professed to venerate the dead prophets, but they always rejected the living prophets. And Jesus knew that even as they were decorating the prophets' graves, that they were plotting his death and that these exact leaders would complete the rejection of the prophets that their fathers had begun. In a sense, their fathers had filled up the cup of murder partway, and these guys would fill it up to the brim by killing the Lord Jesus and his followers. He says, from Abel to Zechariah, from A to Z, from the very first martyr in the book of Genesis to the very last martyr, written about in the book of Second Chronicles, which was the last book in the Hebrew arrangement of the scriptures. So from the beginning to the end, from A to Z, from Abel to Zechariah, they killed them all. And because of it, Jesus says in verse 36, Assuredly, I say to you that all these things will come upon this generation. What things? What was about to come upon them? Well, the very same blood, death, scourging, tribulation, persecution that they and their fathers had inflicted on all of these prophets. 
just days from now, right, in chapter 27, as they're crying out for the crucifixion of Jesus, they're going to cry out, let his blood be upon our heads and our son's heads, and indeed it would. Because as we've seen prophesied, less than 40 years from this time, the Romans would annihilate Jerusalem. They would slit the throats of more than 10,000 Jews there and living in Damascus. So if given all this, right, Jesus is brokenhearted. Brokenhearted not only at their present rebellion, but at their future fate. And he cries out in verse 37. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I say to you, you shall see me no more until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, I think it's highly significant that this chapter that contains some of the strongest language ever recorded from Jesus closes with him in tears as he's lamenting over this city, right, of lost opportunity. Now, isn't it interesting, what was it that the people were crying out when Jesus first rode into Jerusalem just days earlier on a donkey? Remember, it was Psalm 118.1, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And here Jesus refers back to that very same cry, and he says, you know what, you're going to cry that again, only next time you're going to do it with a new understanding. Because here he's speaking of his future return to the earth when he will finally and fully establish his millennial kingdom, Revelation chapter 19 and 20. That time when Israel is finally going to embrace its Messiah and live under his reign and come into all of those kingdom blessings and promises that have been made to them. And notice Jesus doesn't say, you shall see me no more unless you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He says, you shall see me no more until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So in other words, this is going to happen. They will say this. The time is coming when the Jews will acknowledge Jesus as Lord. And yet until then, here we are, the church. right? And we're co-laboring with him for the lost. We are battling the reality of legalism and of the Pharisee-like things that separate people still from having a direct and an intimate relationship with Jesus because his desire for every person is the very same as he cries out here for the nation of Israel. He says, let me gather you under my wing today. He says, come back to that place that you belong. Put away all of your worldly priorities and put away your backsliding, put away your legalism. He says, time is short. It's not going to matter eternally what people thought you were. It's not going to matter what you, know, what you looked like to others. What's going to matter is your relationship with me. What's going to matter is whether we were connected intimately on the inside and whether or not you lived to worship me, whether or not you truly loved me.
Those are the things that are going to matter. So if you're here this morning and this kind of legalism, right, or concerns for how you look to others, if that kind of a thing is a struggle for you, if you constantly find yourself trying to do better so that God will love you more, can I tell you that he, you couldn't possibly do anything to make him love you more than he already does? And Jesus wants to free you from that bondage today. And if you're here this morning and you've been kept from this kind of an intimate personal relationship with Jesus because you've been caught up in or you've been steered wrong by the legalism of others. Maybe you were raised, maybe you're currently caught up in a religious system that's based in performance and rules and rituals and extra biblical teachings and requirements where men or even saints are exalted and placed and they've become this barrier between you and the Lord Jesus. And I tell you that Jesus wants to free you from that today. He wants to take you under his wing. He wants to be connected to you intimately and personally. He is wanting and he is willing. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for your word. And we thank you, Lord, that it points out, Lord, not only the things that we need to be aware of, Lord, not only the things that we need to avoid, Lord, but that it so clearly communicates your heart and your love for each one of us as individuals. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's struggling to know that love, Lord, struggling with, under the weight of performance, Lord, or, or trying to do things so that they can be more pleasing in your eyes, Lord, so they can be more loved by you. I pray, Lord, that you would help to free them from that. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning that still is trying to achieve their own sense of righteousness, Lord, that they could be good enough before you, Lord, good enough to be with you in heaven. Lord, I pray that you'd free them from that. I pray that you'd help them to see that Jesus is the one who died on the cross, that their sins could be forgiven and that they could find their righteousness in him. Lord, that when you look at them, you would see him and you would see his righteousness on them. Father, I pray that if there's anyone like that here today, that they wouldn't let even another morning go by, Lord, that they would come for prayer, Lord, that they would find someone near them, Lord, that they would come forward and talk to one of the prayer counselors. Father, that you would draw them unto yourself, Lord, and bring them into your kingdom today. We ask it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God is good. Amen. Let's stand and let's uh, let's worship him this morning.